Before we move on, I think the foot has such an important role in balance. Mm -hmm. And balance, like as in actually your ability to balance like uh, like a child would on one leg is something that we don't train enough, we don't think about enough, mm -hmm. um, and is huge, like it has a huge effect on your quality of life, especially when you get old. Um, and the, one of the main causes or the main reasons as you get old that your health deteriorates mm. um, is that you have a fall and you break something and then you have to have an operation and you have to be in hospital for ages and whilst that happens you're, you're not exercising and your muscles weaken and your heart and your lungs weaken and for many people at a vulnerable stage of their life that means that they then have to move into a care home because mm -hmm. they're unable to do stuff themselves anymore mm -hmm. and often it ends up people become bed bound and die like it is poor balance causes death and this isn't a rare thing this happens all the time mm -hmm. all the time mm -hmm. um, and balance is never is never thought about we talk about strength we talk about mm -hmm. flexibility mm -hmm. but we never talk about balance or proprioception which is another kind of medical it's word a really for interesting topic um, which I often translate proprioception so think to yourself do you know what that is first if you're listening mm -hmm. and I define it as your awareness of yourself in space Yes. And there's, I've read many scientific or medical articles that show as you age, your proprioception can become so much worse. Yes. If you're not doing anything in which you practice improving or maintaining your proprioception. It's one of the first senses that goes. So proprioception is one of your senses. You have special mm -hmm. nerves in your body. So you've got special nerves that take information about whether something's hot or cold, about whether you're being touched gently or whether you're being stabbed sharply. You've got different nerves for all of them. Mm -hmm. But you've got some nerves that just bring information about the position of your joints in space to your brain and they're your proprioception nerves. So there's a whole structure oh, within your body that does that for you. But they're the first, that's the first um, sensory system that gets lost as you get older or as and you become And many people fall. Yes. And then this would be the reason that they fall or lose their balance. Yeah. So balance training is really important, especially if you're getting to, I'm saying, I say this to my parents who are in their mid fifties mm -hmm. um, and both of them have quite poor balance. Um, because they've never thought about it or found a necessity to train it. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I tell them all the time how important it is for them to do balance training. Mm -hmm. And it's stuff like so simple, like instead of sitting down to put your shoes on, do it standing up and practice standing on one leg whilst you do that. And I do that as part of my day-to-day. -day. I try and balance as much as possible, as often as possible. <laughs> just like so just these small things that you introduce to keep that... Um, sense strong and, and, and alive as you get older. And that's something that people have told me they've never observed whether they have very good balance or not so good balance until they've done something like yoga mm -hmm. because they said, oh, it's been ages, you know, since I learned to ride a bicycle. Mm -hmm. So there isn't maybe an activity anymore in daily life. You know, we're not balancing mm -hmm. things on our head to carry them. Mm -hmm. You know, I think... 
that in you know a time before there was a lot more daily balancing needed it's nothing you take for granted and people people naturally have very variable balance as well so mm-hmm. my balance is not naturally very good mm-hmm. um other people naturally have, have very good balance and but mm-hmm. you know become aware of what your body is like and if you're especially if your balance is not good think about when you're 80 years old and it's going to be worse mm-hmm. and you're going to be a bit vulnerable and if you fall over you probably are going to break something so you don't want to fall over mm-hmm. and start, start <laughs> training it and be morbid about this but um, it's the reality and mm-hmm. it, you know you've got to think a little bit ahead as to like your future self and mm. yeah. and I would say just a quick key there is actually just being able to micro bend the knees mm-hmm. yeah so that your joints aren't locked Hmm. And that when you, if you fall and you're able to slightly bend joints, then usually uh, you're able to bear the weight of the fall better. Yeah. And actually, I have a nice little story about this from um, a discussion that I had while I was in Rishikesh, which is in the north of India. And I was living in an ashram with some other practitioners. And we were all afraid to fall from handstand. Mm-hmm. Uh, or headstand mm. and we were talking about oh you know yeah but you know would do the hands naturally open like does the back stay stiff you know and then you just sort of hit the floor and then sure enough the next day in class what we had to do was to basically practice falling backwards Mm-hmm. We didn't do this alone and we had support. There were two people that were there and it was very clearly taught like how to hold each other. Mm-hmm. But it was so interesting that yoga sort of gave, one, it gave this courage to fall well mm-hmm. and to know that you actually can learn to fall well. Mm-hmm. And that removes a lot of fear, yes. which also helps a lot of situations that could potentially be dangerous. Yes. And then second, that once I had fallen, I was fine. The fear was gone forever <laughs> yeah. of falling backwards in Shirshasana headstand yeah. because I learned that I either drop back into a back bend mm-hmm. or that my hands just naturally become undone and I roll. Yeah. yeah? It's interesting you bring up this fear of falling when you're talking about balance because I think the two are very much related. Mm, yes. like, um, I do quite a lot of hill walking and if you, if you go hill walking, you'll know that some people love going uphill and they don't mind that at all, the cardiovascular mm-hmm. excites them. Some people hate that because like, they don't like the feeling of like strain on their heart and lungs. But when it comes to going downhill, you're equally as divided. Some people can skip down a hill, they love that bit. Some people get very nervous, they don't like it, they feel frightened of mm-hmm. falling down. Their balances tends to be not very good. I and think too much knee pressure, too much knee pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the thing is that the, the, the two are very linked because if you're, I, I've walked to people who hate going downhill and the fear of falling is clouding their ability to balance well on like the rocks and the, the logs and things that they have to walk over and jump over. So because the whole of their focus is on this fear and their muscles all tense up um, and they're not being able to use those subtle muscles that you need to adjust to balance well because of the fear, then their balance is worse and then they're more likely to have a fall and they're more likely to have a bad fall. So the two are very linked as well. Yeah. So again, we're pointing out this connection between what's mm-hmm. going on like psychologically, emotionally, mm-hmm. with what's going on physically. Yeah. And I think this is like, 
the bridge that you and I are trying to make by sitting across the table from each other mm-hmm. is to better inform like ourselves so that we can be better people helping other people mm-hmm. so that we can be better practitioners yeah. and so that people listening and then these areas of yoga and medicine in general can move closer to each other yeah and be informative and have dialogues like this yeah mm. yeah they have a lot to teach each other yeah exactly yeah. do you have anything else you want to say about sleep <laughs> so I will end with recommending you all say hello to your feet um, at least just become aware of how you stand mm-hmm. that can take you no pun intended miles and miles and miles or kilometers and kilometers wherever you're living mm-hmm. um, I, I was quite struck when I first did Iyengar um, I don't know if it was with you or with someone else I can't remember but I was like this is way too focused on the feet like it kind of freaked me out right so mm. um, but then someone said something which was um, a saying um, if you cannot control your little toe how, how can you control your mind mm. was that a saying from you but it really stuck with me uh. and um, it it meant that I started to bring a lot more of my consciousness into my feet mm-hmm. and I found it very beneficial in lots of ways in my life so yeah I'd recommend it great and then to end with a quote by BKS Iyengar he says uh, a yogi's brain extends from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet mm. so even your little toe yes everything's included great okay so I don't know if you remember, but I the last time I came to visit you in Berlin, mm-hmm. um, you were running a a class for like a meditation class with yeah. a group of people. Um, the class still exists. Does it? Yeah. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was uh, maybe a year or so ago. And anyway, I, I kind of had asked if I if I could come along and join, um, to see what went on and to mm-hmm. join the discussion. And you were like, well. You can come, but this week we're talking about death, so <laughs> if that's okay with you, then come along. And I was like, great, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love talking about death. Um, it's one of my favorite things to talk about, so... Me too, and this makes me like really excited to sit here with you and have this discussion about death. Um, and it's something that I, I feel like I can't always be an open book about. Because when I am, I, you know, you never know what other people's reaction is going to be, but it is a yeah. very wonderful topic in my mind to discuss. Absolutely. I, th- I think the hesitancy is that, you know, is that person got some strong emotional recent thing yeah. or some unworked through grief or... Um, by my bringing it up is this going to be awkward and horrible and mm. um, so people that really really avoid having a conversation about death which then leads to so much taboo in mm. talking about death yeah and i think one um equanimous way to remove some of that taboo is just to say as equal as we're all born we all also are going to die And to just look at it as a very um, factual part of our existence and a very natural part of our existence. Yeah. 
And that, I think, helps remove uh, a lot of the fear around it and a lot of the hesitation in talking about it. Absolutely. Um, I would love to live in a world where it's not a sensitive topic. Yeah. I would love to live in a world where it's something that everyone is capable of discussing, everyone has the realization from preferably a young age that they're here for a finite amount of time mm -hmm. and that this incarnation in this human body with this mind as we know it and this form as we know it is only for a short period of time. Yes. Yeah. I, f I find that, so when I was studying as a medical student and going into hospital and um, first of all meeting old people on the geriatric ward, mm -hmm. um, I had a fantastic teacher who was a senior geriatrician at the hospital I was at in London and um, his first question on the ward round that we were doing was... Um, he just turned to me, I was a medical student, he was like, oh Chloe, nice to see you today, thanks for joining us. Are you frightened of dying? <laughs> that was his like, opening gambit. <laughs> I, I'd never really come across this kind of um, teaching strategy before. So I, was, I, I thought for a bit and I was like, well, I, I don't think so, but I don't know because I'm young and I haven't had to face up to my own mortality mm. um, in a particularly real way but I don't think I'm frightened of dying. So he, he was like, well, I think that's a, that's a good answer. You know, you're not sure. What you should do is go home tonight and run a really deep bath and then hold your head under the water <gasps> for... He was a really good doctor. <laughs> I feel like I watched it. So he, he told me to just head, hold my head under the water for a really long time until it felt like I was drowning. And then when I felt like I was drowning, he was like, don't worry, your body won't actually let you drown, but just hold your head under a bit longer mm. and see what happens to your body, right? And your, your thoughts and your emotions mm. when you do that. So I did it. And when I did it, there was this, um, and anyone who's had a near-death experience, I'm sure will relate to this, um, but this huge sense of anxiety just rushing up and taking over my entire body, like this fear, like this, this fear I'd never experienced anything like it before, just everywhere in my body. And I came back in the next day to hospital, and I saw him again, and he was like, oh, did you do, did you do the bath thing? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I did the bath thing, because I was like a, a, a loser, like a student. Um, and he said to me, those those feelings of fear and anxiety which are related to our instinctive bodily knowledge that we're going to die as you get older become stronger and stronger in your body mm -hmm. right and his theory was that this is a is a cause of chronic stress on human beings that uh, becomes amplified the closer you are to death for mm. most people and for most people they suppress these feelings of fear and anxiety about their death um, through various means maybe drugs, alcohol, sugar whatever um, but they cause a lot of chronic health problems mm. this, this chronic stress in your body um, and ultimately cause a lot of the diseases of old age. These were his theories um, mm. as, a, as a very eminent gerontologist. Okay. Um, and I found it so interesting. And it's not, not everybody, because some people come to terms with 
their own mortality and are able to come to peace with it um, throughout their life through various ways. I think it's unique for everyone, that path. Mm -hmm. Um, But he said to me, as a doctor of old people, you have to speak to them about their their death and see what comes up. So because of this, I started talking to lots of old people about them dying (laughs) in the the near future, (laughs) which was one of the most rewarding things that I had ever done. Um, Mm. And I still do it to this day as often as I can. And the first man, I remember very clearly the first man that I spoke to about his death was a guy who was maybe in his early 80s, something about that. Um, and he had a family around him, but his family never spoke to him about death and he never spoke to them about death. And he was sitting on the ward and he had cancer, like terminal cancer. And um, no one had spoken to him about his own death. It had all been like innuendo, like, you know, oh, well, you know, you've got this shadow and, you know, it's not curable. And... and he was just looking like awful. He had no energy. He was um, the ward round came round, and I was kind of attached to the ward round as like a junior, and um, they kind of told him something about a surgery that they wanted to do, and and he didn't have any questions. He was like almost a mute, like in response to that, and then they moved on. And I hung back because I felt that the interaction had not been a particularly fruitful one for him. So I hung back after the ward round, and I said to him, you know, I, do you understand what's going on with your disease and your illness? Because, you know, it was quite short ward round and I wasn't quite sure that everyone um, communicated all the information that might be helpful for you. Mm-hmm. And do you have any questions? Um, and he was like, am I going to die? Mm-hmm. And so I said, yes, yeah. Um, we can't exactly say how long, but it's going to be soon. Um, you know, in the near future, most likely, um, let's talk about it. So we had a conversation about death, and at the end he said, like, he said to me, thank you so much for talking to me about that, because no one will talk to me about my own death. My family will avoid it, even when I try and bring it up, they'll, like, tell me to be, not to be silly, and, like, not to be morbid, and to, like, keep my chin up, and to get on with stuff, and I've got no one to, I've had no one to talk to about this, so it's been, it feels like a real relief for me, and I was like, oh, well, that's great. And then I went back the next day on the, the ward round, the same thing, we were going around all of the patients, and came to him and he was a completely changed person. And the, he was sitting up in his chair, he was mm-hmm. like full of life, he had questions, um, he was really challenging the surgeons about what they were doing and like asking them loads of stuff. And he was like, I've had the best night's sleep that I've had for years. Mm-hmm. Um, and afterwards he was like, that just being able to talk about the fact I'm going to die has made me feel so much better. It's taken on such a weight off my mind. Um, and that experience, like, and experiences like that, I think it's really highlighted to me how important it is to talk about these things. <laughs> a real basic thing you can do to improve how people experience death, their own death, the end of their life, and the death of other people. Um, everything. So that's why I think it's. I'm happy we're doing this podcast about death. Well, this is such um, a moving story, and I, I would just be so happy to know if there are doctors out in the world that are comfortable talking to patients about mm. their death, mm. and that requires a doctor. I think also being um, comfortable on some level with their own death, mm-hmm. or at least able to discuss it with someone who is dying. 
Um, yeah, well, that's a really moving story. Thank you. There are, it's not as bleak as all that because there is a really great specialty called palliative care mm. and their specialty is death yeah. um, and the processes around dying and kind of allowing people's symptoms around death to be well controlled mm. but as a group of individuals they tend to be very comfortable and well balanced talking mm. about death and I think they're incredibly helpful and I think anyone that has um, experienced care from palliative care physician um, or palliative care nurses mm. would say the same thing how incredibly helpful it is but what what is interesting is um, palliative care so actually actively treating death diagnosing treating talking about discussing death adds six months to your life Hmm. that's been shown in studies kind of all over the western world so it's actually bizarrely kind of embracing death gives you better life life and more life (laughs) which I think people are frightened to talk about death with someone who's say got a terminal illness because they're worried in some way they'll cause that person to lose hope and that because they'll lose hope they'll die more quickly it's the opposite Mm. the opposite thing happens yes and this I have known from um, several friends and family members when they have been ill um, one through cancer for example and his direct words to me were I am so sick and tired of everyone pretending like I'm not dying Mm. And in that moment, I had a kind of waking up because I was timid in approaching the topic of death with him. Mm-hmm. But in fact, as you shared in your story, it's all that he actually needed to talk about. Mm-hmm. And then everyone else I know was trying to be in their own way, compassionate and careful. Mm-hmm. But it, for him, felt like a complete avoidance and denial mm-hmm. of what was actually going on. Mm-hmm. And that in order to be fully embraced he needed the people around him to accept that he was dying. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of stories that I've heard, read, conversations I've had where people discuss how moving it is to be with someone when they die mm. and that it's such a great teaching. Mm. And someone that is able to exit or leave this life and this body um, really has an opportunity to show something that other people are really afraid of Hmm. Um, and not saying that all people want to take on that role who are sick and dying Hmm. um, but I think it's just what happens Hmm. Um, people die in very different ways yes exactly interesting thing and coming then from a just a buddhist perspective Mm -hmm. you know the first thing that made me imminently aware of my own death was just a line that I, had, I was reading in an autobiography of a, of a great yogi mm-hmm. and it said uh, from the 15th century mm-hmm. and it said uh, since the time of death is uncertain but death is certain what is the most important thing right now mm-hmm. and I use this in support also of the story that you told that by embracing death as a natural part of life it actually gives us more life Hmm. and then I referred to this phrase again and again and again and it was this fantastic mental tool Hmm. um, to train my mind to see what was actually of value Hmm. 
or to see what I actually wanted to do with this time that I had here. Mm. And even, you know, after some years of really contemplating that, I still habitually think that, oh, I probably won't die today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, as you said, there's many different ways to die. And I'm sure people that, you know, die in sudden accidents, like car accidents or bus accidents or, you know, um, plane accidents, probably don't wake up that day thinking that they're going to die. Mm-hmm. But if we, I have this idea that if we all knew that more precisely, it would actually give us more joy. We would behave much more compassionately and kind to each other mm-hmm. because we would recognize that many of the things that we perhaps get upset about mm-hmm. or grudges that we hold against people or unresolved issues in families or unresolved issues between friends, that there's no need for it mm. because that person could be gone in a second. Yes. And then there could be regret and then there could be wishes for other things. But if we all lived with a more prevalent awareness of death, I think we would be a kinder society. Yeah. And you often see it in people who have had a very serious um, near-death experience, whether it be a chronic illness that Mm. that they've recovered from or whether it be a serious accident where they almost died. Um, Often those people, after the event will say that they're very grateful it happened because it's given their life this huge perspective and all of the little things that used to worry them are fine and they focus on the things that are important and you I think you often hear people saying I'm really glad in a way that terrible thing happened to me because this perspective it's given me has been so wonderful and so life-affirming um which is another reason to talk about death, because I think even you don't have to experience that yourself. Mm-hmm. You can get a set, you can get a sense of perspective by talking to people that are dying or closer to death than you are, or have accepted their own death in some ways, mm-hmm. or are struggling with that in other ways. And even by just having these conversations, you introduce a bit of that perspective into your day to day life, which is really helpful to people. Yes, and two things come up for me here. One. I think it's a reason, and I've read this, you know, in many uh, articles, some scientific, some spiritual, that after people have these near-death experiences um, or recover from an illness, or even if they don't fully recover, but they get an extra six months, so to speak, Mm -hmm. you know, it's the best six months of their life, Mm -hmm. um, is that it is these, these... Uh, experiences that make one face death instantaneously that brings them onto a spiritual path Mm. that makes them realize something is missing Mm. or that something doesn't feel right or that something feels off and I think that death is a very quick teacher of that Mm. second thing um, in the practice of yoga there's a pose that if you've ever been to a class you know this even if you haven't you also probably know this shavasana Mm -hmm. where you just lie down at the end of class flat on your mat that's the corpse pose exactly so part of a yoga practice while you do this pose to like relax your muscles restore your body there's very physical benefits to it and mental benefits Mm -hmm. ultimately it's the practice of dying every day 
So that one day when your death does arrive, you can know that your life will end in Shavasana. Hmm. And I actually had a yoga teacher tell me this. Hmm. And it was a workshop just on Shavasana, hmm. which is not an easy pose for everyone. No. For some people, this is the most difficult pose. Yeah. They feel anxious. They feel nervous. Their eyes twitch. They can't even rest with closed eyes. Mm-hmm. They don't. They feel very vulnerable with the throat exposed. Mm-hmm. They can't just relax the fingers. You know, the fists are clenched. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, then it shows that something really needs to be worked on. Mm-hmm. The body needs to learn how to let go mm-hmm. and relax. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this workshop that was just on the practice of Shavasana, the teacher very clearly, I can still hear her in my head, she said, um, well, folks, it all ends in Shavasana. You know, everyone kind of laughed, but meaning like we're all going to die. And then she very detailed explained how our last breath that we would take would be an exhalation. Hmm. And then maybe what that would feel like maybe certain symptoms that would appear as this last breath is going out. Hmm. Um, And then after that, so much fear was gone for me. Hmm. And I felt that this knowledge really liberated me Hmm. to know that like, oh, I would just exhale and never inhale again. Yeah. You know, if I die quite naturally. Yeah. And from that point on, I viewed my Shavasana practice entirely on a new level. And it wasn't just like the pose at the end of class to relax the body. But it was, in fact, letting go of the fear of death. Yeah. You're, you're preparing your body to die in a non-painful and a non-terrifying way. Yes. Um, Which I remember being so poignant when you discussed this in the meditation class. Mm-hmm. That, like, there's a lot of people that die in a way that is not peaceful. Mm-hmm. And that that causes a lot of suffering for themselves and others. Yes. Yeah. Do you yeah. want to share some of that? Yeah, I think I feel very fortunate that I have witnessed a lot of people dying. Mm. Um, A lot of people still die in hospital and I've been predominantly working in hospitals for a while. So I'm often involved in the care of people that are in the last stages of their life. And I don't know how, I think a lot of people in the modern world don't come up against death, they don't see death, they may see a relative dying if they're lucky, but a lot of time they're a long way away from their relatives, they don't get back in time, they're, you know, they might pop in and see them but be too frightened to stick around and stay, which I would advise just sit and watch, it's it's a beautiful thing, um, mm-hmm. and really educational and, and important, but that's missing from a lot of people. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's useful to talk about what dying looks like and what happens to the body is you you're generally unwell or just otherwise very frail and you enter a state of dying so someone who is actively dying and this state can last for some people they enter the dying state and it will last a few hours and then they'll pass away overnight. For other people, this dying state will last days or even weeks. Not normally longer than a couple of weeks, but it can it can be quite extended. And 
it's quite easy to predict how long <laughs> this is going to last for people um, because it's completely related to how frightened they are of dying, how accepting they are of dying. Mm. People that are very accepting of their own death will speak about it openly, don't have a lot of tensions or fears around it, will, will go quite quickly in general. Um, people that have a lot of fear and tension and anxiety and have never really been able to fully face up to the fact that they're dying, this is, these are the people who have very extended long deaths. Mm -hmm. And for them it becomes very painful. And what you end up doing as a, as a doctor um, is it's very difficult at that point in someone's life to psychologically change their um, experience of death, right? This work has to be done a lot earlier for someone to be prepared. So at that point, we'll give huge amounts of strong medications that basically take someone away from their experience of dying, that numb them to it all. Now that, like I think it's humane and it's good that we do that because mm -hmm. for, for, for some people death can be a very painful experience and it's a good thing to know that there is something that can help you with that if you end up in that terrifying situation. But it doesn't have to be the way and for myself and for other people that I meet they want to experience their death because it's part of life. You don't want to be numb to that kind of pivotal Thing that's happening to you. Mm. I think especially people that have always lived in a present way or in a curious way or are religious people and they, and they are envisaging their um, religious teachings around death and perhaps they will meet their, their saviour or um, go to heaven or have some kind of wonderful transcendental experience. Mm. People don't want to be numb to that. People want to live that and experience that. Mm. Um, so this is why I was thinking about everyone is so different in their approach to this, but having watched people, I know which one I'd rather be. <laughs> I'd much <laughs> rather be experiencing the people that are peaceful about their own death, have accepted it, they pass away quickly, there's no pain, they don't need painkillers, you don't necessarily need painkillers to die. Mm. There's no fear, it's mm. just, it's just a, a slowing of the breath, mm. a, just a gentle slowing down of the way the body's working. And at some point they'll take that last out breath and that'll be it. Mm -hmm. And in those situations often the family have a very positive experience of it. Mm -hmm. um, no one is overly distressed or obviously people are sad, but you know, it's not a, a tense or upsetting time. Mm -hmm. um, and in the other extreme, when, the, when people are very anxious about death and haven't prepared for it and are not um, able to embrace it at all, that spreads out and everyone around them becomes very tense and anxious. You get huge arguments breaking out amongst families. Um, it's just, it's, it's a completely different thing. Um, and so I just think people are not aware of the way that you can prepare yourself for this mm -hmm. part of life. And whether that's something you're interested in doing or not, I think is, is individual. Um, just because I'm interested in death doesn't mean that everyone wants to, you know, have a kind of transcendental death experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, I... I
yeah. and I'll admit that <laughs> openly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and especially on a lot of Buddhist teaching, you know, the moment of death is very important and mm. it's your chance to actually practice mm. a lot of the teaching yeah. that you've been studying, practicing, integrating, kind of what you've been simulating. You have yeah. this moment to um, meet your mind in a new way, so to speak. Yeah. And, and, and not trying to over-romanticize it, because you obviously have no control over... Like, if you died because you, say, were walking down the street and a car smashed your arm off or your leg off, you're going to experience severe pain from yeah. that, and you're probably going to have that severe pain for a number of hours and um, and then die. Mm. So you've got, to be, you've got to embrace the fact that it might not be like you lying in a white room with like exactly. your loved ones and angels singing. It could happen <laughs> in like this whole variety of ways. Which I think will, I think that like being okay with talking about death will allow a more spontaneous death acceptance yeah. to, to arrive more quickly. But on a very practical note, um, I got advice and it was very surprising advice, but then I found it to be, wow, like so supportive of being okay with talking about death is I got advice to make a will. Mm -hmm. And I had never thought of it because again, I'm young, I'm healthy, I don't need a will. Mm -hmm. But in this instance, like you're saying, if you can really die in any moment. And the way it was proposed is that making a will is being compassionate towards yourself and everyone that loves you. So that in your moment of death, no one has to try to make decisions for you that you didn't say beforehand what your wishes are. Mm. So, you know, things like, do you want to receive, you know, life-saving fluids? Do you want to be put on a respirator? Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure you know these <laughs> better than me. And then aside from these physical life-saving measures, what's to be done with your possessions? Mm -hmm. What's to be done with your pets? You know, who's the main guardian of your children, if you have children? Um, who is your, what's supposed to happen to your house? And then actually what I found in doing this process of preparing my wishes for my own corpse, so to speak, mm -hmm. and then where I wanted things redistributed and how, mm -hmm. is it made me even more comfortable with my own death. Mm. And this is what I didn't expect, but I now feel like, oh, you know, there was one copy like in my parents' house. I have one copy with me. My sister has another copy and it's in a sealed envelope. Mm. And that should something happen, my wishes for my care and my wishes for, again, just possessions and life things, it's all stated there. Mm. And I think it is such a lovely compassionate thing to do for people that love you so mm -hmm. in that moment they can do their best to be present for you care for you because you've given them the gift of stating things clearly yeah mm -hmm. there's also something in the practice of looking ahead and working out all the really boring administration mm -hmm. practical tasks in your mind it's almost like if you you know if you were going to do a really difficult thing in your day you'd probably be advised to go through that, you know, if you're taking a journey in a strange city, you kind of think ahead, you imagine walking down the streets, you imagine getting the different yeah. connections beforehand, because it helps it go smoothly. Yeah. Um, and if we do that just for, you know, an interview or, you know, a sports game or mm. whatever, why are we not doing it for death, yeah. which is quite a big part of life? Yeah. And then I started asking many friends, like, oh, do you have a will? Do you have a will? And everyone's like, no. Yeah. And that's when I realized, oh, it's usually something that people do much later in life. So this is, for those of you, like, 
who are interested in becoming more in contact with your death, if you're not sure of a way to do that, like writing a living will is one way you can do that. Mm. And I'm sure it's helpful in a hospital to have these things already sorted. Yeah, we tr- we try and um, get things, get a plan in place as much as possible before someone dies. Because well, I think a lot of the time we can do various things when someone dies to try and bring them back to life, mm-hmm. right? So everyone's seen kind of emergency hospital programs on TV where they do CPR and they're like pumping up and down on the chest and like there's also beeping going on and all of this. That happens um, de facto. So if you don't say that you don't want that, mm. that will happen to you in most Western countries. Yeah, and I think it's really important to be informed about that. Yeah. Um, now, if you ask most doctors and most nurses who are involved in the CPR process whether they would want this for themselves, very few of them say yes. <laughs> because they know the reality of what this is. So the first reality is that the chances of it succeeding are incredibly low. Mm-hmm. It's something like uh, 4% for an in-hospital cardiac arrest. It's something like 2% if you happen to die outside of hospital, so it takes a bit longer for this to happen. So they're very low. And even those people that are revived... Um, a lot of them will end up with permanent brain damage or they'll end up with, um, so, so they might be, you know, not able to use their arms or legs, they might not be able to speak, they might be, you know, have to receive care for the rest of their lives. And a lot of people don't want that either, they'd rather just pass when they passed. Um, it's, it's an individual thing, obviously, but I think it's important to kind of put things in perspective because I think it's wrong that the majority of the general public would say that they want to be resuscitated, whereas the majority of people that understand the process would not want to be resuscitated so there's an imbalance there there's something that there's more information that needs to be given about what's going on yes um and we try um i don't know what the culture is in different medical systems but in the uk we'll try and have a we have a form which is called a red form in by by a kind of uh, innuendo process um so we say do they have a red form Um, Mm. But it's basically a legal piece of paper that the doctor fills in saying that CPR is not in this patient's best interest. And then when that form is filled in, then you don't get CPR. So often when you're older in hospital um, or you're very unwell, a doctor will come to you and your family and discuss it with you and Mm. say, we don't think this will be a good idea. However, if you want to ask for it, if this hasn't been done for you and you want to ask for it, you can just ask for it. And most of the time doctors will be over the moon to like sit down and fill in that form with you because normally it's them not wanting to bring it up in case it upsets you or it worries you. So if you just want to bring it up, also yeah. that's, that's great. The same form exists in the US. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's referred to as a red form, mm-hmm. but it's an end-of-life procedure form. Mm-hmm. And when I filled it out, it went through each life-saving measure that could be done. Mm-hmm. And then I could check a box of saying like, yes, I definitely want that done, or no, I don't want that done. Mm-hmm. Or I could say you know, in what circumstances I wanted it done. Mm -hmm. And then also how many times I wanted it done. Like if CPR was done once, Mm -hmm. and then if it needed a second time, did I want it a second time? And just the form itself was a very good guide. 
yeah. for me understanding the possibilities of what could happen. Yeah. But I had never heard of the form until I asked for it. Yeah. And the response I got when I asked for it was, you're so young. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's, it's probably something that we would introduce more if someone was likely to die at some point, kind of un, in the next couple of years. Mm. You know? <laughs> it's not something that I suppose just from a kind of practicality point of view, you don't give it to like every, every. child as they graduate <laughs> from high school. <laughs> but essentially we could all die at any moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think most most young people, the majority of young people, unless they're very mature and they've thought about it a lot, mm-hmm. um, if the doctor feels they can bring them back to life, they then they probably should. Yeah. I don't know. Unless, the, like, if, you, if you're a young person and you've got really strong feelings about it, then <laughs> sure, go ahead. But I think most young people probably don't have incredibly strong feelings about not wanting mm-hmm. that to happen. Um, Can I ask a question, a very medicinal question about uh, what happens when someone passes away? Yeah. So let's say someone has just passed away. Um, It's been a relatively peaceful death. Um, They've exhaled willingly on some level. Um, Then what happens? To their body. Yeah. Or how long can the family stay in the room with them? Or, like, just what happens next? Sure. Um, So, you can stay in the room as long as you like (laughs) with the body. I think um, in the past, uh, it was traditional to keep the body of someone who had recently died in the front room, open coffin, so that um, friends and relatives could come by and pay respects to the the dead body. So the body is not going to rot for, like a while like after maybe like seven days you're going to get a bit of a smell coming mm. off it or whatever but it's it's fine mm. um so yeah if you want to stay with the body if you want to touch the body there's nothing there'll be no harm to you mm. um are you instructed to close the eyes um traditionally we often close the eyes on on dead bodies mm. um but my job is <laughs> my job after someone has died in say hospital is uh, as a junior doctor I'll go into the room mm-hmm. and I will open up both of the eyes yeah. and I will I just have to formally check for any signs of life so that I can certify that the person has died so that involves me um, listening for three minutes mm-hmm. for any breath sounds mm-hmm. and watching the chest for any signs of breathing for three minutes mm-hmm. I have to listen to the heart for one minute Mm-hmm. I have to check any reflexes or signs that the brainstem is still alive. So that does involve me opening the eyes, shining a light in the eyes, looking for any pupillary reaction and things like that. Mostly it's a formalization because in the majority of cases, it's quite obvious when someone's died that they're dead. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was always taught by my seniors to value the experience of going in and spending this 10, 15 minutes with the dead body, touching it, mm-hmm. listening to it. And some this mostly happens in the middle of the night, right? So you're on a night shift, so it can be a little bit creepy. And the the, <laughs> the the body itself makes like noises when it's after it's dead. So, cause there's still bits of air which are stuck in like parts of the lungs and they move around. So you're like, you're listening to the chest and then you suddenly hear this like breath sound. You're like, ah, <laughs> we're going back to life. 
but um, I, I was taught to just really value the experience and um, I do, I love it. It's a great way to reflect on mm. your own, just to take that time out of a busy shift and reflect on your own mortality. And I always teach my students to do that too. Mm. Um, and looking in the eyes of the dead people I find is, um, is a really wonderful experience. There's something that you can't quite describe about it and they're so beautiful. Like, eyes are so beautiful, mm. and dead people's eyes are just as beautiful as alive people's eyes, and you can, like, really look in, like, really deep, because they're not alive anymore, so they can't see you doing it. <laughs> so you can, like, I always look at the pattern on the irises, and um, just spend the time appreciating that person's body mm. for what it was, and, um, yeah, that, sounds, that probably saying. sounds very morbid, but you have to find ways to get through these no, things. No, but I think this, but I think this is part of the thing that removes the taboo around death like for me mm. this is something I've actually always wanted to know mm. is like what would be the step-by-step procedure with my body in a hospital mm-hmm. because as a spiritual practitioner I'm not convinced that the moment the heart stops beating that I'm dead yeah mm-hmm. there's I think there's an understanding of that in the sense that the nurses will often when a person has died, the first thing they'll do is draw all the curtains um, mm. around the person in the room, the body in the room. They will um, clean up anything, say the person has got any vomit or blood or anything on them, they'll clean it all up. They'll perhaps change them into some clean clothes mm. and they'll bring the sheets up so that they are comfortable, they look comfortable and they're lying peacefully and they look like they're peaceful in the room. Mm. And then the nurse, that tends to be what they do and then they will move outside. And partly that's for the relatives when they come in. So mm. when they come in, they see a, a their relative in a way that's not intimidating or not kind mm. of scary to them. Um, but I think it's also a way to just give some time around this, like some to some rituals around this process which has become so de-ritualised in our mm. like society. And like lots of other societies have lots of death rituals, but we have we don't have many anymore. And this is why people who, who have been there or seen a video about this or read a book about it, this place in India Varanasi. Mm. Um, and I think it's one of the greatest teachings that this country ever ever gave to me, and I also know for many other people, is to see practitioners of of different faiths, you know, not just not just Hinduism, who they know they're going to die, mm-hmm. so they you know pack up their entire life, and then with everything that they have left, they travel to this holy place because they want their body or their ashes, if they're cremated, to go into the the Ganges River there. Hmm. And I had never seen such a death ritual before, Hmm. you know, raised in in, um, Western Pennsylvania, you know, in the United States. Hmm. Um, And to see this very, very, very openness in the culture that it was just known, like, may you be so lucky to know you're going to die, to travel to this place, Mm. to have your loved ones with you, to be able to die consciously, Mm. and to be in the place that is very respected for death, so to speak. Mm. And that, to me, just still remains like this very vibrating and alive Mm. teaching. Mm -hmm. Um, And then how many people go there in order to begin practicing facing their own death and that that's a very instrumental part of a lot of eastern religions 
mm-hmm. is to actually go to like the crematorium um, or to cover oneself in the ashes of the deceased mm-hmm. uh, as a symbol of overcoming the fear of death mm-hmm. or beginning to work with the fear of death. Mm-hmm. So I think it's very interesting that in the West it is something that I did have a question about because I've never seen it. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been with someone briefly after they passed, but I was kind of whisked away rather quickly, which was okay in this situation. Mm. Um, but there's not, yeah, there's not necessarily a, yeah, I didn't know. It's a mystery. Yeah. Yeah. And I, 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 there's nothing more terrifying than a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Was, so like removing yeah. some of the, the layers of that, because I think it's equally alienating, you know, and this is just my opinion, obviously, to show a dead body with, you know, a full face of makeup on and Mm. the hair has been curled and they're made to look as if they were still alive when clearly they're not still alive. Mm. And I find that just a little bit creepy or uncanny. I can Mm. respect it for people who want to have a certain memory or they want to, you know, remember the joyful times. I totally respect that. But on another level, I think, isn't it funny that even in death we wear makeup? Hmm. <laughs> you know, is there ever this time when we're very like nakedly raw and without hesitation just saying like this is our true nature? Yeah. Is there any particular cultures that do that? Hmm. The, the, the kind of embalm and um, put makeup on the dead? And I think it's definitely becoming less common hmm. to do that kind of thing. Hmm. Um, Partly because we know that it's going bad for the environment now. Because the chemicals just they have to put into the body, yeah, um, yeah they, they seep into the, the ground and they can be quite toxic. Um, but, you know, if that's what your cultural tradition does, mm. then I don't it's know. Understandable. It's not my cultural tradition. No. But, um, um, ours is equally problematic, I think. Um, well, I was very fortunate because I was brought up in a religious family, so yeah. death was, like, for a child, very accessible within mm-hmm. a structure of when you die, it's a really good thing because then you get to go to heaven and meet Jesus and all of this. So it was for, it made death for a child seem quite, mm. quite an easily accessible thing. It was talked about a lot at home, which I appreciate a lot. Mm. Um, I, don't, I don't necessarily believe that anymore, but I think it can be... A really helpful way in or way to introduce people to the idea of something terrible. It's obviously it's a bit complex. I don't really want to get into religion, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it can be very helpful to people. Like I've mm. I've met a lot of Christians who because I think it can even make accepted. I think that view could even make problems. It does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it does. Um, um, but having said that, when when I do meet people that are strong Christians in mm. not all Christians but some Christians have a real problem with death um, and you meet all kinds but some Christians have completely accepted their own death and they're really happy relaxed mm. old people because of it and they're very joyful and mm. I don't see a problem with that I think it's a lovely thing in a way mm. um, there was a child that I saw in, um, in Goa and it was a, a western child that was born in India Mm-hmm. Um, meaning both of his parents were from the West, uh, one from Germany and one from the UK, and then he was born in India. And this moment really stuck with me. Uh, he, he witnessed a frog dying. He was about five or six years old. Mm-hmm. And his first response was, 
I wonder what the frog has become now. Hmm. And I just saw so much wisdom in that of just seeing this moment of death as a transition hmm. and that this was the child's first thought. Hmm. And there wasn't like a, a panic and a needing to like hide the frog's body or there wasn't a dialogue that was needed with him. He just naturally saw it as this uh, transition point and that the frog's energy had become something else. Hmm. Um, but that's something I've never heard uh, in the West. Yeah, I think uh, reincarnation is a, a very alienating idea for mm. a lot of Western thinkers. Um, and I think it's because we have a sense of our own selves as we have to exist as we are. Um, otherwise, we're not ourselves. And ourselves are the most important So either the, the only acceptable options is like either... Um, you go somewhere else as yourself. Like <laughs> We're so attached to the self. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This or is... or you just obsolete, and then that's the end of it. And mm. there's no point even thinking what happens to your energy or you know any part of you because it's not you anymore. Mm. Um, so the idea of reincarnation, I think, is just irrelevant to Western thinkers because it's mm. not you; it's something else. Wow, which just yeah. shows like the egocentricness of our thinking. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I introduced in a class; it was like another class on death, mm. and um, I, I just said to kind of yeah, I said to someone, "You will never be you as you conceive of you now again." Mm. And she cried. You know, she became very, very, very mm. sad. And I just realized, for me, that wasn't a, a large statement to say, but it showed me, like, how painful the cracking of this concept of self is yeah. and almost even how unthinkable, actually, it is. Mm. Because we move entirely, often, from our own limited view. Mm. And we're not used to moving from outside of our own scope of viewing things mm -hmm. but if you're able to sit for a moment and let's say you know have a sky like wide mind and perceive like how many beings are on planet earth how every second someone is dying and someone else is being born mm -hmm. and to practice a little bit of detachment to yourself mm -hmm. or a little bit of renunciation towards yourself clinging mm -hmm. that then this concept of self can loosen a little bit. Yeah. And what I find beneficial about loosening this concept of self is that it does generate more compassion. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's one of the um, things I found most helpful to meditate on mm -hmm. um, in terms of... So you often are taught to, I don't know, maybe it's just the way that I was taught, but the way I was taught to, to meditate is you start by thinking of yourself and kind of trying to um, imagine or conceive happiness and contentment and equanimity and all these things for yourself and joy. And then the next step is to, to, to do the same thing, but to envisage a circle around you so people that you like or close to and then after that you think about other human beings perhaps people you don't like people in your community and then after that you kind of if you're able to um, expand that feeling that you've initially had just for yourself to the whole world and mm. 
like all the energies in it, then that's a really wonderful thing. And I haven't got that far, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but I can see I can see the the benefits of just not thinking about myself, but thinking about mm. the people around me and trying to want the same happiness and joy and contentment for them as I would want for myself. And that seems like a really obvious thing, but for me, it's like the way I was brought up in the society I live in, it was hard. Obvious. <laughs> yeah. this, is, this is beautiful, thank you. And in case anyone wants like exact names for what Chloe just described, like, it can, no, it's great. This, it can be described as um, the practice of the four immeasurables, hmm. um, which are love, um, compassion, joy and equanimity mm. and it's having those four in balance within yourself mm-hmm. and then having those in balance with others mm. then the second thing that you described is basically tong len which translates as giving and taking meditation mm. and how this works is that you're able to because of the stabilization of the four immeasurables so to speak you're able to not just extend these helpful qualities to yourself, but you're able to extend them to people you like. Mm. You're able to extend them to people you don't like. Mm. You're able to extend them to people you know, Mm. to people you don't know. Mm -hmm. And then those categories lessen their hold on you. And Mm. ultimately you're able to extend those qualities to all sentient beings. Yeah. Which is just such a big concept. And I think that, can confuse or inspire people equally but to just start thinking in terms of all sentient beings Mm. I find in itself is such a transformative practice because it means leaving no one behind yeah and it's such a brave thought to behold Mm. like may every being whether they've caused me harm whether they've done something unkind you know whether they've been a dear one or a not so dear one like may they also have these experiences of wonderful qualities Mm. Um, and again I think with that practice we're moving towards a much more compassionate world Yeah, which I feel is so much of the revolution that's needed which is an emotional maturity I think more than needing to learn how to gather more information and disseminate it, which is useful to a level, or needing more knowledge or needing more power, I think we need emotional bravery Mm. to solve a lot of inner and outer conflicts. Yeah. I think when you start blurring the line between yourself and the person sitting opposite you, Mm. um... It's not actually overwhelming. Like you, I think you're you're always frightened that you can't take on the problems of everyone. Mm. But that's because you're thinking of you sitting on your own. <laughs> like how do I solve poverty? Um, but it's, yeah. it's it's not like that, and that's never going to work. Right. You have to blur the line between you and the person sitting up. You know, and it's just like actually, like we're ta- we were talking about with the human body. Mm. You know, we extend from the bottom of our feet to the top of our head. Just as that is one, you know, 
entire universe unto itself functioning in relation with each other, so is the whole planet. Hmm. You know, if you viewed the whole planet as one giant body, Mm -hmm. you know, when you put like an acupuncture needle in one place, it releases tension somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And it really helps me to take that perspective of the planet. Yeah. It's less isolating. Yeah. Um, And then it's also, yeah, I can see, oh, I can actually hold hands with someone clear across the world and together we can help do this thing. Mm. That, that it, it is possible to do things, mm. like begin to take steps towards solving poverty mm. or something. Maybe this is why people don't like talking about death. You start yeah. talking about death. <laughs> <laughs> talking about metaphysics. And, yeah. uh, but that, that, that link is, is, is fascinating because it's almost always the way that thinking about your own death um, or the death of others starts making you think about who you are as a human being, what your place is, how you should act in the world, how you can improve your um, interactions with your environment and Mm. the the communities around you and animal life and the, Mm. you know, everything. Um, And so in in a way, like, they're very wonderful, inspiring places. So I wish I'd talk about death more. Go ahead and talk about death. I agree. (laughs) So I'm going to recommend that everyone gets a cup of tea and sits down at the table and, like has a, a conversation about death yeah. and just see where it goes. Not that scary. No, because one conversation at a time, yeah. more people will be happy to join around the yeah. death table. Yeah. And we, we, haven't, we haven't solved the problem of death. No. It's obviously a big thing, but we've yeah. talked about it. We're okay. Yeah. Yeah. We're aware of the skull and bones. <laughs> <laughs> Great.